Good morning, everyone. You've already been greeted this morning. I'll add my greeting as well. It's good to see your faces. You want to take your Bibles or find one close by, go to the book of Galatians with, with me, if you would. Galatians chapter 2. We regularly say for the benefit of our guests that we are working through, uh, it's been our pattern for many years to work through books of the Bible. And so we are some weeks in, a little over a month into um, the book of Galatians. And so we are picking up where we left off. I'm looking at two verses today. Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. It's past July. The Greenbrier section of the National Park was flooded heavily, which caused a lot of damage to that part of the park. So they have closed off a lot of the familiar trails, the trails that some of you I know have walked. And I think maybe my favorite place in the park is Ramsey Cascades. And right now, since July until now, there's no way to get there, at least not legally. You can't get in to see this magnificent waterfall, 110 feet tall. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've been to that site, but it's a lot. Um, And I keep checking the site to see if the trails are open because I want to go back. And you may say, well, Ronnie, you've seen that waterfall. Go somewhere else. No, I want to see it again. And I want to see it again in the spring. And I want to see it again sometime during the summer. You say, isn't it a little familiar to you? I say, yeah, it is familiar. I know. I've, I've seen it. I, I know the stand of tulip trees that leads up to it, some of the fallen trees around it. Same big flat rock that you can spread your stuff out on. The same course of water that for generations has run its way down that familiar place. But I want to see it again. If you visit your hometown, there's probably a sweetness, a comfort in finding it unchanged. The shops, the roadways, the houses. Whenever I visit the area where I grew up, my father and brother and I will fish in some of the same mined out phosphate pits that I have my whole life. And it will look very much like it did when I was very, very young. We'll take the same route to where we go fishing. We'll stop at the same convenience store. We'll drink the same bad coffee. We'll load up the same tackle. But it doesn't have to be different to be good. In fact, the sameness counts for a lot of the sweetness. Why do I mention this? Because today we're talking about justification by faith. And I suppose that is probably the most reiterated theme ever preached from this pulpit. It's it's touched on and sometimes explored deeply every week. Justification by faith. But we keep going back, and we will today. We keep citing the same text. There is a 100% chance today that I will reference 2 Corinthians 5.21 in today's message. We keep quoting the same songs, and we will today, familiar songs. Do you honestly think I'm, I'm going to preach on justification by faith and not quote, it is well with my soul? So I will. When it happens, you say, well, he said he was going to do that. Of course I will. But like a heavy quilt... We're just going to wrap ourselves in that glorious sameness today. Consider it together. Let's look at it. Verse 15 and 16, Paul speaking. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I mentioned this is a treatise on justification by faith, but it is not first a treatise on justification by faith. If you've been with us the last few weeks, you know that this appears 
in a context. In fact, it, it appears in the context of an uncomfortable conversation between two men who love each other. And when I mention justification by faith, it will be my joy. If that's unfamiliar language to you, and I, that's perfectly fine, it will be my joy to explain that as we work through the text today. But that theme, that focus is central. Again, it falls. This idea, this treatment of justification by faith falls right in the middle of a difficult conversation between Paul and his friend Peter. You remember, Paul was concerned about a particular heresy that was working its way into the Galatian assembly. The Judaizers linked law observance to a person's salvation. So they did not reject Christ wholesale. They saw the necessity of Jesus' work. Yet they laid on top of that the demands of the law. So the way we've been saying it is, they required you to go through the door of Judaism in order to get to Christ. So specifically what this looked like would be circumcision, dietary laws, feast days, honoring the Sabbath, all of the things that were attendant to Old Testament law. What this looked like for Gentiles was in order to come to Jesus, they must submit to rights that would have been foreign to them as Europeans or North Africans or those in that area. We saw last week that in Antioch, a contingent from James had come and and Peter began to feel pressure from what the text calls the circumcision party. And he drew back relationally. He created a little distance relationally between the Gentiles who were uncircumcised and his Jewish brothers. He began to draw back. Specifically, he wouldn't eat with them. Paul said, that's completely out of step with the gospel. That's, that's not how the gospel works. And so, the Bible's pretty clear here, some kind of public confrontation had happened. Peter had taken this position. He'd even influenced Barnabas. Barnabas was in this. Others were being impacted by that. So Paul deals with public sin in a public way. So he confronted it. Openly, So that is the setting in which we get this theological statement on the doctrine of justification by faith. It, see, it seems like, it seem, in fact, you see this all across Paul's writings. It seems like Paul thought that the answer to everything was the gospel. And the reason for that is because the answer to pretty much everything is the gospel. I mean, what, what they needed to hear, even this tension between factions within the church, the gospel needed to be brought out, laid before the people of God, and considered. So he's going to contrast this, and I think we'll see it done really emphatically here. The bulk of our time, uh, verse 15 is really introductory, so the bulk of our time is going to be in that rich, dense 16th verse, which we're going to spend our time in. The flow of the argument in verse 16 is interesting. We're going to see this. He says the same thing. Did you notice this when I read it? He said the same thing three different ways. Exactly the same point, three different ways. He says it generally. He says it personally. And then he makes a universal statement. So he's saying generally. This is, this is how people are saved. And then he looks at Peter and says, now look, Peter, that's how you were saved. That's how I was saved. And then he's going to say, and that's how... Everybody is saved. No man living is justified by works of the law, but in, by faith in Christ. So he said it, and then he said it, and then he said it. You say, Ronnie, is that our outline? Kind of, yes. He said it, and then he said it, and then he said it. The simple gospel, here's a better outline. The simple gospel stated. The simple gospel applied personally. Peter. And then the simple gospel broadened, that is opening it to every living person. This is the way that every person is saved. So you can trace Paul's line of thought in simple terms. What's he going to say here? People are not saved by what they do. 
And then he's going to say, that's not how it happened with you, Peter, or me, or Barnabas, or any Jew. And then he's going to say, that's just not how it works, Peter. Doesn't work that way for anybody. Stated positively, people are justified by faith in Jesus. General statement. That's how it happened with you, Peter. A particular, more focused, personal statement. Third point, because that's just how it works with everybody. This is how everyone is reconciled to God. What is it that Paul keeps repeating here? He's repeating the gospel. He's repeating, uh, which we, we summarize as just the glad proclamation of the death, burial, and resurrection of God, uh, of the Lord Jesus. That reconciling work of God, when repenting sinners, people who turn to Jesus for forgiveness, are received into the family of God and guarded throughout life and into eternity. He's repeating the gospel. Now, this is probably the first time that Paul ever used the word justified in, in, in any of his writings. It's certainly the first time in this book. And if this is the first book that he wrote, we think it is. This is the first appearance in his corpus of this notion of justification. So he's never said it to this point, but when he said it, he decided he liked it because he said it three times uh, in one verse, the 16th verse. You see justified used three times, and you see faith in Jesus or belief in Jesus also referenced three times in this one densely packed 16th verse. Justification through faith. Now, the language of the Reformation, which you may be familiar with, the solas, which you very often will reference, that on the basis of scriptural authority alone, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. It's not our faith that saves us. It is grace that saves us, but it is through, that is the means by which the gospel is applied to the heart of the contrite sinner. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The glory of God alone. J.I. Packer famously summed up the story of Scripture. He said, if I were asked to, I very often quote this, if I were asked to summarize Scripture in three words, it would be the three words, adoption through propitiation. Those are rich words. We're received into the family of God through the sacrificial atoning death of Christ. Now that summarizes, you say, what about the Old Testament? Yeah, the Old Testament. This is, this is the whole story of Scripture, and I'd say that's a pretty good summary. But if we were looking for three words to summarize the application of Packer's three words, it might be the language of this text. Justification by faith. Through belief in Christ. Martin Luther was so impacted by this theme. In fact, this, this revolutionized, absolutely revolutionized the life of a tormented man when he looked, come to learn justification by faith. He said that justification is the doctrine on which the church rises or falls. It's where he got the most heat in his public ministry. Calvin said it is the hinge on which everything turns. So we use the language of justification, which we're going to use all the way through this book, um, we, we need at least a basic kind of working definition of what we're talking about. And I would say even an irreligious person, someone with no church background, at least can understand justification conceptually. It, if you ask me to justify a particular act, if you ask me to justify a behavior, what you're asking me to do is to demonstrate my own innocence. Well, on that point, we are not far from the gospel. So the language of justification by faith, which we will press again and again and again, relates to how people are declared innocent before God. Remember, we're picking up in the middle of a thought, and he's defending his proposition that, that was his, his confrontation of Peter, and I think by extension Barnabas and the others, He's defending his proposition that distancing oneself from other believers based on law-keeping is out of step with the gospel. 
So he's making the point. The way, Peter, you are relating to these Gentiles in Antioch, that is not the way the gospel operates. It's completely out of step with the gospel. So he says, in developing that thought, we ourselves, you see that in verse 15? We ourselves are Jews by birth. I think the language would permit, we are naturally Jews. We are Jews by nature and not Gentile sinners. It seems like another case where Paul gets a little sassy there, doesn't it? I, uh, we're Jewish, we're not Gentile sinners. I think I speak for all of us non-Jews when I say, you don't have to get ugly, Paul. You, know, you, don't have to get, um, you can just call us Gentiles. Well, he is making a point. By the way, Ed, we love you. Thank you for not referring to us in that way, though there would have been scriptural warrant for you to uh, address us as Gentile sinners and probably some observable things, too, to uh, establish that. Why would he say, we're Jews, we are not Gentile sinners? He is pressing a point that you know to be the case. There, there is a distinction. Look, we're not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it's the power of God unto salvation to the Jews first and also to the Greeks. And those early chapters of Romans in addressing yet another uh, difficulty between the Jews and the Gentiles in the Roman church, he lays out the necessity of the same work to redeem the Jew or the Gentile. So he is saying... Look, there, there is, I think, a distinction. He is not saying that Jews and Gentiles sin differently. He's not suggesting necessarily that Gentiles are inherently worse. But he is saying that the Jews do have the constraints of the law, which did not, was not the case with the Romans. They do have Hebrew history. They do have the feasts that point to these glorious truths. They understand the basics of atonement. Paul deals with this in Romans chapter 3. When he asks the question, well, does our Jewishness mean anything at all? Does this even matter? And he says, yes, much in every way. The Jews are entrusted with the oracles of God. This is a privilege that the Gentiles did not know. The promises are theirs. The prophets are theirs. But even there... The point is made that irrespective of ethnicity and background, we are justified in precisely the same way. Now, if you get that idea, you've got the gist of verse 16 and 15. If you, if you get that idea, you understand that's really the thrust of what we're saying. Irrespective of ethnicity and background, we are justified before God exactly the same way. So there is not a Jewish path to redemption and a Gentile path to redemption. There is one path to justification. It is belief in Jesus Christ, as we will see here. Well, this whole discussion, as it relates to us, presumes a need. And this is a problem we're always going to face when we hit familiar themes. This whole thought, as it relates to us, presumes actual need. Nothing that we are discussing today will delight your heart until you either feel your current state of condemnation under the law or your earlier actual experience of condemnation. I'm saying this truth will not bring joy to your heart until you see your actual need, your actual condemnation under the law of God or current, or your earlier experience of condemnation. The truth is, you are either in trouble or you were in trouble. None of us default to okay. So if you think you are okay, having not found refuge in Christ, this truth, what we are laying before you, will kind of land a little hollow. For this truth to make sense at all, we probably should address the subtle distortion regarding how we see ourselves and others. That goodness, this idea, I think this is a fairly common idea, the idea that goodness and badness kind of exist along a continuum from 
profound evil, shockingly vile evil, to somewhere approaching perfection. Not perfection, but pretty clean. So if your idea of sin, and we're setting a, 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 the stage for justification, in order for justification to be sweet, I think you're going to have to dispense with that idea that there is a continuum and that we fall somewhere on that continuum. Probably not shockingly vile, maybe. Probably not close to perfect, but sinners. A more, a more appropriate way to see this, if I've sinned once, a more appropriate way to see this is that I have sinned against an infinitely holy God. And as such, I am due an infinite consequence. This this was an issue that Jonathan Edwards really worked through. Um, The question was, how can a finite body of sin produce eternal judgment? It's a good question, isn't it? If I sin, even if I sin enthusiastically for 50 years, 60 years, 70 years. That's not a lot. That's not a little. That's a lot. But it is a finite body of sin. Why would judgment carry on into eternity? And it was precisely the point I just made that he built his argument on. A single sin against a God who is infinitely holy, who is infinitely, impeccably pure, requires, necessitates, if he is to be just, Eternal consequences. So this goodness and badness tracked along a continuum. We have to dispense with that. There's bad, and then there's really bad, then there's criminally bad, and then there's shockingly bad. No, we're all bad. You're bad. I'm bad. We are bad. The basic understanding of Christian doctrine requires us to dispense with that. But there can be a kind of subtle, functional belief that really, honestly, I don't think I would send me to hell. I, I try to be decent. And most of the people, most of your coworkers, if you ask them the basis for their expectation, they're going to be in heaven. Everybody expects to be in heaven. If you ask them, they're probably going to retreat into, I tell you, I'm doing the best I can. I try, try to take care of my neighbors. Try to be a, I want to be a really good dad. And uh, boy, I, just, I try to be a sweet mom to my kids. And I, that's, um, I'm just counting on that's, it's going to all work out. That is no place to plant your flag. So that is, that is kind of the basis. Before we can really dive into justification, we have to understand the rightness, the appropriateness of eternal judgment. I often quote the song, if sudden vengeance sees my breath, I must pronounce thee just in death. And if my soul were sent to hell, your righteous law commends it well. So we would enter judgment with the acknowledgement this is absolutely right. There is no injustice in the universe when that happens. Well, a couple of things that we understand innately. You know this. There are a couple of things as people we understand innately. We understand the existence of God, and everybody has at least a basic ethic, a concept of right and wrong. We know that there's a God, and we understand that we have done wrong. You know God? And your functioning conscience reveals your own sin. You know that you have transgressed. Even if you can't articulate the law, you know there are things that you've done wrong. Now, those things are innate. They come standard. Every human. We know there is a God. Where do I get that? Romans 1. Look, they knew knew God. They just didn't glorify him as God. And and our conscience, but kind of continuing that same thing. even Even without a law... Our, judge, our consciences condemn us. So you can suppress the knowledge of God, but it takes work. You're, you're going to have to work at it. You're going to have to push it down. You're going to have to contend with a lot of beauty and a lot of order. And there's a lot out there that kind of testifies to the existence of God. You gotta, there's some invisible things from the foundation of the world that are clearly seen that kind of puts you under condemnation. But you can push it down. Same with your conscience. You can dampen it. You can sear it so it doesn't function right. But we're born with those two innate certainties. And considered together, there is a God 
and I have done wrong. Considered together, that forms our problem, which opens the necessary discussion of justification. Does that make sense? Now, the question is this. This is really the big question that Paul is addressing here as it relates to the conflict to Antioch. How can a man or a woman or a young person ever be made right with God? Now, that is the most consequential question you will face in all of life. How can you be made right with God? So we're assuming you're not right with God. Either you had a problem or you have a problem, but nobody defaults to all right. Things are not all right. So if things are not all right with you, how can they be made all right with God? Well, the point is clear in this text. Law observance isn't your answer. Law, listen, trying to buckle down, keep your nose to the grindstone, keep pressing and keep trying to be obedient. That is no place to retreat on this grounds of justification. We need the gospel. So it's going to just be repeated again and again and again. We do it all the time. The gospel is that good news that sinners like us who are guilty and live under the just judgment of God can be freely and fully pardoned from our sin, completely freed from the penalty of our sin and accepted into God's favor on the basis of Jesus' obedient life and his sacrificial death, not on the basis of works and our readiness by grace to place our confidence there. That's it. Period, end of sentence. That is how erring sinners are brought in to faith in Christ. You say, is that the end of the sermon? No, it is not. We are, uh, we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Our text says, we know. So he's just made the point. Look, Peter, you're a Jew and I'm a Jew. We are not Gentiles. But we, you and I, know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And he's going to say, now, that's how, that's how it happened with us. But he's making here a general statement. This is how it happens. People are not justified through their obedient acts. Nobody. Nobody is justified based on their obedient acts. I often say it this way. Nobody's walking around heaven saying, did it. Nailed it. No, nobody, nobody rightly can retreat into their track record as their basis for acceptance before God. He goes on. We also have believed, we, you and I also, we're, this, this is your story, Peter. In Christ Jesus, in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. And then he's going to say the same thing about everybody. Because by the works of the law, no one universally will be justified. He says it, then he says it, then he says it. This is how people are saved. This is how you were saved, Peter. And this is how I am saved. And this is how everybody gets saved. One verse. General statement, particular statement, universal statement. Not by works of the law, but by faith in Christ. Not by works of the law, faith in Christ. Not by works of the law, faith in Christ. You think he's got something on his mind? You're not, you are not going to decent your way into acceptance. You are not going to obey your way into acceptance. You must place your hope in Jesus or you are without hope. Law observance was never meant to save you. So he's saying, we're Jews, Peter, but we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law. But through faith in Jesus Christ. You might ask the question, well, Ronnie, is there any legitimacy at all to the law at all? I mean, is there any point to it? Well, certainly there is. There is. It's in God's word. Theologians, I think really helpfully here, have given us the threefold purpose of the law, kind of the function. It reveals who God is. That's good, isn't it? It helps us under, understand the God we worship. 
So when you consider the law of God, can I teach you the Ten Commandments real quickly? I've done this years ago. I'm relying on my memory here. I think you can memorize this as I do it. Uh, The Ten Commandments, there's one God. You're not to worship anything that even looks like. See how that second finger kind of looks a little bit like the first? You're not to worship anything that even looks like God. Third, your words. Listen, you, you, you are not to profane the holy name of God. Fourth, you see this thumb here kind of resting? This is children's church on Sunday morning. Uh, this that thumb there resting. There's a day when we rest. So this is the Sabbath laws. Fifth, honor your father and mother. Why? Because if you don't, there's a, you know, you, there's a, um, six, Sixth, this, this is a, a, a stretch here, but this is a gun pointing at these people here. You, you're not to kill, right? Thou shalt not kill. Now, seventh, you see two people walking down an aisle. Do you see there? Thou uh, shalt not commit adultery. Seventh, that. Eighth, rather than doing this, do this. Put your thumbs in there like that. Because some places they cut your fingers off if you steal, right? So, or cut your thumbs off. So that's a pleasant thought. And then uh, this is probably the biggest stretch here. This guy over here is kind of by himself because he's a liar. People don't want to be with, with people who bear false witness. And then tenth, uh, you're not to covet. Those ten fingers kind of grabbing like that. I didn't mean to do that. That's, see, this is why I preach for an hour. Uh, but th- this is the law of God. There is a function to the law. It reveals who God is. So when we say, do not commit adultery, we are learning that God is faithful. When we say you're not, you're not to kill, that tells us God is a God of life, not of death. When, when we say, don't bear false witness, it means when God speaks, what he speaks is true. It reveals the God that we worship. That's why David could say, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. This is how I understand who you are. Second purpose of the law. It restrains evil. So this would be one of the blessings of the Jewish nation, that people flourish where murder is forbidden and false witness is forbidden. There's there's a restraint that the law produces in... in, um, among the people of God. And then there's a pedagogical, that's a fun word. It shows us our need. And I think this is more pertinent to what we're talking about here. What the law does is it shows us we got a need that we can't fix. I think in part, and I think this is what Jesus is saying through the Sermon on the Mount, is is the problem is, is bigger than what you think. Even if you can get through life and avoid adultery and murder, you still have a problem because you're angry and you lust. And the the pedagogical function of the law is it shows us our need. Now, it reveals need, but it does nothing to fix that need. It reveals need, like an x-ray machine might reveal a problem. But that x-ray machine doesn't fix that broken bone. So the law reveals a problem. It does not fix the problem. So trying to be honest and remember the Sabbath day and being faithful to your wife and trying to avoid murdering your neighbor, all of those things, that, that will not save you. After taking two and a half chapters to establish man's guilt, both the irreligious pagan in Romans 1 and the Jewish moralist in chapter 2. In chapter 3, Paul says, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. That's what the law does. It shuts our mouth, and it makes us accountable to God. Consider two men. One a Jew, we'll call him Asher, and one a Gentile, we'll call him Felix. Asher grew up in a believing Jewish family, or a a devout Jewish family, born into Tiberias, 
his dad was a fisherman. All he knew about life was life under the covenant people of God. His was a reverent home. The first voice that he heard upon his verse, upon his birth, was when the midwife handed his newborn baby to his father, and his father held his head up to his voice and said the Shema, Shema Israel, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first voice that he heard. His name itself is indication that he was schooled in the Hebrew Scriptures. He knew the Torah. He is, as they said, he, he drank in the law with his mother's milk. His childhood memories involved pilgrimage and festivals, three times a year traveling up to Jerusalem and singing the Psalter together as they traveled. All he knows is reverence to Yahweh, all of his life, and law observance as a way of life. Saturdays were different than Fridays. Felix knew none of that. Felix was born in Malta, off the North African coast. Like his, his parents, he acknowledged a whole confused mix of Roman deities and local fertility gods. He was a violent man living among violent people in a violent place. He had no reference for God at all, had never even heard God referenced, the actual God of the Bible referenced. He held superstitions regarding the sea. He had fears that all of the, 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 the evil kind of had a repository in the ocean, and so he was fearful much of his life. Yet it would be from the sea that Felix's hope would come because Paul's ship goes down off of Malta. He comes walking up the, the shore and begins to preach the gospel. And Felix hears it and believes it and turns to Jesus. Asher's story is different. Asher was wrecked by the fact of the resurrection. He lived close by, he'd heard the stories, he'd talked to the witnesses, he knew something happened there. The gospel was presented to him for the very first time. He placed his faith in Jesus, turned to Christ, and found a refuge there. Now, here's the thing. Backgrounds could not be more different, right? Could not be more different. But in the most consequential ways, Asher's story is Felix's story. And Felix's story is Asher's story. In, in, it, it's true in eternity. It's true in life. And I think we're going to see here, it's true at the dinner table, Peter. It's true in the way Asher's supposed to treat Felix. And it's true about how Felix is supposed to treat Asher. They are received into the family of God exactly the same way. It was always God's intent. So when we look into glory someday, we don't see Jewish communities, European communities, the communities of the new world. We are one people of God. How are we justified? We are justified. We're going to return to justification in just a moment. We are justified by faith in Christ Jesus. Faith in, you see it repeated three times. Faith in Jesus Christ, faith in Christ Jesus, faith in Christ. Martin Luther said it is the further function of faith that it honors him whom it trusts with the most reverent and highest regard since it considers him truthful and trustworthy. There is no other honor equal to the estimate of truthfulness and righteousness with which we honor him whom we trust. Could we ascribe to a man anything greater than truthfulness and righteousness and perfect goodness. On the other hand, there's no way in which we could show greater contempt for a man than to regard him as false and wicked and to be suspicious of him. As we do when we do not trust him. So when the soul, the soul firmly trusts God's promises, it regards him as truthful and righteous. Nothing more excellent 
then this could be ascribed to God. The very highest worship of God is that we ascribe to him truthfulness, righteousness, whatever else should be ascribed to one who is trusted. We revere Christ as revealed to us in the gospel when we say, that is my hope and only that. We are justified by faith in Christ Jesus. We are vesting all of our confidence in what he said to be true, what he accomplished in his life, and what he secured in his death. And he says that, that and that alone. We are trusting only in that and not the observance of the law. So we consider faith in Christ. The way we might ask the question is this. If you expect to be cleared in the day of judgment, and do you? Do you expect to be cleared in the day of judgment? Do you expect to stand before God and be cleared of your sins? If you expect that, on what basis do you expect that? The point of this passage is we are saved as we vest all of our hope, any hope of future acceptance into glory and and acceptance in this moment in Christ and Christ alone. And that is the glorious truth of justification. Justification is an act of grace. It is, we'll we'll summarize this and unfold it and then we'll close. Justification an act of grace. It is a judicial pronouncement in which the erring sinner retreating into Christ is forever clear to the guilt of their sin. It is an act of grace. So we are, we are trusting in that. By the way, where Isom took us today in the, in the catechism, if you're inclined to say, well, then my faith. I'll, it's my faith then. So he does all the hard work, but I do bring faith. I'm, I'm, I'm going to bring my confidence. Scripture undoes that, and our catechism, I thought, articulately undoes that idea, that our faith, even a meager kind of merit. I mean, look, if, if I owe you $15,000, I meet you for lunch on Tuesday, and I say, hey, look, let, let me pick up lunch, and we'll just call it even. Neither, if I could produce my my faith, that would give me a little bit of glory. Not much, a little. But Solideo Gloria, he is, he, he, he is due all glory. I say it all, I say it the same way. If if I am partially responsible for my salvation, then I get partial glory. If I am mostly responsible for my salvation, then I get most of the glory. If I'm completely responsible for my salvation, I get all the glory. If God is partially responsible for my salvation, he gets partial glory. If he's mostly responsible, he gets most of the glory. But if he took me when I was dead in my trespasses and didn't want him, would not come to him, would not fix my problem if I could. If he took me when I was dead in my sins and brought me to life in Christ, then he gets all the glory. And the faith that saves me is itself a mercy. So that desire for him, that did not come from you. For by grace, Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that faith is not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It is grace who saves us, and the faith that would bring us to him is itself a mercy. You know that there's a group of women that meet every Thursday morning early to discuss serious, thick, important works of theology. This has happened for many, many years. They've read some very important books. And this week, one of my friends from this group pointed me to a passage from Sinclair Ferguson in his book, Devoted to God. They read this magnificent book. And, and, and it deals with the, the, the little Greek word ice. So we, we see it repeated here three times. 
faith in ice, in Christ, in Christ Jesus, in Jesus Christ. This is a key to understanding this text. Sinclair Ferguson says the early Christians, perhaps by, uh, led by Paul himself, occasionally employed language in novel ways in order to express what was new and unique about the gospel. And he applies this specifically to this idea of in, ice, in Christ. One particular expression that Paul seems to be without parallel in Greek literature is when he speaks not only of believing in Christ, but also about believing, get this church, this is so good you don't want to miss this, but believing into Christ. Faith in the Son of God means believing into Jesus Christ. When we believe on or believe in Christ, we are actually believing into him. Now, he is opening a theological treasure chest, this idea of union with Christ, that we are swallowed up, enveloped in, fully united to Christ. Faith brings us into a person-to-person union and communion with Jesus Christ so that what is ours becomes his and what is his becomes ours. This perspective was so central to Paul's teaching that in contrast with ourselves, we never find him describing believers as Christians. I asked somebody this week, tell me about when you became a Christian. I, I do that all the time. That's not the language Paul would have employed. In fact, the expression Christian is used very rarely in the New Testament. Instead, because we believe in Christ, believers are most frequently described as those who are in Christ. On average, it appears in his letters in one form or another between two to three times per chapter. Can you imagine that? The point is to grasp is this. Believers are so united to Christ that all he is and has done for us becomes our possession too. When Jesus died on the cross, in some sense we died with him. When he rose from the grave, we also rose with him. We are believing into Christ. So in the same way that I would find I might put my pen in this book and tuck me. My, my life is hidden with Christ in God. That I am united with him in his death. I'm united with him in his burial. I'm united with him in his resurrection. I'm united with him in his glorious ascension. I have believed into Christ in such a way that there is such a vital union that what is his is mine. What is mine is his. Some of us, I hope you are, are memorizing verse 20, which we'll get to next week. I have been crucified with Christ. By the way, he's still advancing this same argument with Peter. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Well, to fairly deal with this middle section, we have to remember Paul's larger point. He has just said, Peter, this is how people are saved. Peter, this is how you were saved. When Peter entered Antioch, what he was conveying by his conduct was this. From a doctrinal perspective, I see the legitimacy of Gentile inclusion. But when it comes right down to it, where I eat, where I sleep, who I hang out with, I just soon keep that us then thing in place. So I'll acknowledge the legitimacy of Gentile inclusion in the larger family. But I'll eat with my people, you eat with your people. Paul would say, We also, you and me, Peter, we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law. Because by works of the law can no man living be justified. People aren't saved by law keeping. You weren't saved by law keeping. Nobody gets saved by law keeping. 
people are saved through faith into Christ. You were saved by faith into Christ. Everybody who gets saved gets saved through faith into Christ. And Paul addressed Peter's cowardice by reminding him of how he was saved. Not by works done by him in righteousness, but by belief in Jesus. And he's saying, look, Peter, you know this. You too, Barnabas, you know this. Paul here, do you notice this in the text? He, he is not trying to convince Peter of anything, not theologically. He's saying, look, this is something you've already told me you believe. I know you believe this. I've heard you preach. I know what you believe about justification, irrespective of ethnicity. He was not trying to convince Peter of anything. He was pointing him back to something they both knew. We agree on this, Peter. This is your story, and this is my story. He was pointing to the shared conclusions of the gospel regarding how people are reconciled to God. And he's saying, you know this, Peter. You know this to be the case. Paul's intent in this section is certainly gospel clarity, but it's gospel clarity for the purpose of establishing gospel culture. Peter, this has got to affect the way you see Felix. This has got to affect the way you see your Gentile brothers. Peter didn't need his soteriology. That's a big $10 word related to salvation, his doctrine of salvation. He did not need his soteriology corrected. He needed to remember how his soteriology impacted his treatment of his Gentile neighbor. He's saying, Pete, this is how you got saved. It's how I got saved. It's how Felix got saved. It's how your Gentile neighbor got saved. You see, all that you claim to be true vertically between you and God must be borne out horizontally in your treatment of your neighbor. The scripture leaves no wiggle room on that. If a man says, I love God, and he hates his neighbor, that man's a liar. The two great commandments, you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You're to love your neighbor as you love yourself. So all that you claim to be true vertically must be borne out horizontally in your treatment of your neighbor. That is why Peter, Paul pointed Peter to his own conversion, saying you were saved this way, so is your Gentile counterpart. Can I ask you, how like you must your brother be before you will welcome him in? Don't answer that too quickly. How like you must your brother be before you welcome him in? When you think of my people, what springs first to mind? Can you have actual love, not conceptual, actual love for someone with whom you have actual differences? Substantial differences, yet still love them as someone who has found a refuge in Christ just like you did. Peter knew that God had prepared or was prepared to accept sinners on the basis of Jesus' work. But Peter added circumcision as a condition for him to have fellowship. Do you see the difference there? How like you must your brother or sister be before they are warmly brought in as part of the family? Well, it's that problem that Paul said was out of step with the gospel. Paul would say in Romans 15, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing your name. 
So don't miss the larger point of this, the flow of the text here. He's correcting a janked up relational context here between people groups. The truth is, you know this, I know this, mercied people are merciful. I, listen, I understand someone who has never tasted grace being graceless. I don't understand someone who's tasted grace and can still relate with contempt to their brothers and sisters. Mercied people are mercy. Graced people are graced. Well, the last section there, he just, he just makes it as clear as possible. This is generally true. This is true of you, Pete, and it's true of everybody in your sight. He actually, at the end of verse 16, Paul pulls language from one of David's psalms. This specific Greek form will be justified at the end of verse 16. It only appears here and in one place in the Septuagint. That is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And it's from Psalm 143. This is, this is David's cry of despair when he said, Hear my prayer, O God. Give ear to my supplication, to my pleas of mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me. And in your righteousness. And enter not into judgment with your servant. For in your sight shall no man living be justified. It's exactly the same language that you find at the end of verse 16. Your works cannot save you. So as we go to the table, let's just consider again our rescue. Let us consider again the great work of justification. Justification is a gracious act of God where he forever declares the believing sinner righteous in Jesus Christ. You have to go to the courtroom. For you to understand this, you have to go to the courtroom. So that climactic moment when the judge is about to bring down the gavel, when he is about to bring a verdict, that is what is in play when we speak of justification. Guilt or innocence. Guilt or innocence. Guilt or innocence. That's the only question in view here. Justification is a gracious act of God. It is not progressive and the way that our growth is, it is another fun word, punctiliar, happens at a point in time. It, it, it is a judicial pronouncement by which the believing sinner retreating into Christ, believing into Jesus, is forever cleared of the guilt of their sin. You know what that means? That means that the dreaded, certain, absolutely certain, future looming judgment that we will all face has been brought into the present and the re repenting sinner is forever declared innocent. So what you anticipate hearing down there is settled here in the moment. It is in that present moment that this pronouncement is made Before the sinner trusts Christ, he stands guilty before God. But in the moment that he trusts into Jesus, he is declared not guilty. And he can never be called guilty again. He is forever cleared of his sin. Once you have been justified by faith, you can never be held guilty before God again. I know that I have told you that I was arrested in middle school. I did tell you that, didn't I, when I was in middle school? We, uh, your, the look on your face, like, maybe I didn't tell you. When I, the property our family owned ran alongside a, a railroad track. My cousin were out, and I were outside. We had BB guns. We were shooting at the train. And remarkably, we could not have done this if we tried it went in the window of the caboose and actually hit the man who was riding there. It was, it was a pellet gun, so it just barely punctured the skin. It was not serious by God's grace. But it was the easiest investigation for that uh, detective because nobody lived out there but us. And so came up, talked to our daddy, brought us in. We were arrested. They, they, they read us our rights. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say, Canem, will be held against you in court. I can remember this as vivid as anything in this world. 
He realized very soon, the judicial system realized, these boys are dumb, but they're not really criminals. And so they put us into a um, judicial uh, diversion program, so we washed buses for a summer. But when I sat down with the, with the lawyer, scared to death, scared to death, the lawyer said, Ronnie, you're going to have a record in Hillsborough County until you're 18. But when you're eight, 18, someone will go to that file, they'll pull it out, and I'll never forget the language that she used. She said, it will be shredded and cast into the seventh wind. Isn't that a glorious picture? So if you go to the record, you, you go to Hillsborough County now, it's been many years, I don't have a record there. It was shredded and cast into the seventh wind. Now, it's not a strict parallel because we did wash buses. This is an act of free grace. This is an act of free grace where we are forever cleared of the guilt of our sin. Earlier I said that hell is just and it is just. There's nothing improper about God vindicating his own holiness by judging sinners. But it would be an unthinkable injustice were God to rescind his justifying work and condemn a repenting sinner to hell. That would be unjust, unthinkable. It would violate God's character. He would cease to be God. For he has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So we sing it all the time from whence is fear and unbelief. Has not the Father put to grief his spotless Son for us? And can the righteous judge of men condemn me for that debt of sin which, Lord, was charged on thee? Complete atonement thou hast made, and to the utmost farthing paid, whate'er thy people owed. How then can wrath on me take place, if sheltered in God's righteousness and sprinkled by thy blood? Get this. If thou my discharge, this is rich language, if thou my discharge hath procured and freely in my place endured the whole of wrath divine, Payment God cannot twice demand. First at my bleeding surety's hand, and then again at mine. Turn then, my soul, into thy rest. The merits of thy great high priest has bought thy liberty. Trust in his efficacious blood, and don't fear your banishment from God, since Jesus died for him. So church, just trust him. Trust him. That work, trust him. He said, Ronnie, my, my faith is weak. I know. I vacillate. I know. I doubt. I know. Trust him. This could be freeing for some of you. I think people tend to fixate on their faith, its strength or its weakness. And I'm going to tell you, this is torturous. People tend to fixate on, is my faith strong enough? And try to find some confidence there. That is not how faith works. Faith looks away from self and to Christ. So Sinclair Ferguson made this point. Weak faith or strong faith gets the same strong Jesus. Weak faith or strong faith gets the same strong Jesus. So there you have it. No need to be cute or novel or pithy. The truth is itself is enough to carry the freight. Like a walk through Greenbrier. This is familiar ground to us. But it doesn't have to be different to be sweet. On the basis of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and an expression of free grace, he has forever declared the people of God innocent. It is true now. It'll be true again thousand years from now. Our judicial standing is as sure and certain in this moment as it will be when we stand before him in glory.
no less justified this moment than we will be in his presence. It's marvelous, isn't it? It's marvelous. We don't need creative instrumentation to savor the sweetness. The words we sing, though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. And my sin, all the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, whole. He's nailed to his cross. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. Church, look here. Believe into that. Believe into him. Father, we do today. Um, we are people who have, um, have a real acquaintance with our own sin. We know it. We've seen it. We have acknowledged our own guilt. But in your mercy, you have shown us the beauty of Christ. In your mercy, you have shown us the adequacy of his work. In your mercy, you have shown us the full sufficiency of Jesus' atoning work on the cross. So we believe into that today. Those of us who for many years have rested there, again, our hearts turn there. We rest our hopes there. Father, we praise you for that. Lord, we pray too for those who this is, this is foreign to them in the sense that their, their minds are darkened. Would you, by grace, lift the veil, give light, give light. Lord, you in mercy take away their stony heart, give to them a heart of flesh. Lord, you in mercy help them to see you're the same God who caused light to shine out of darkness. Would you cause the light, the glory, the beauty of Christ would be seen? And then would you give to them accompanying faith so that they can trust you? So all of that we look to you for the God of grace. Magnify yourself in that way, we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.